Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 62 of the 30 Years War. Coming to you live from my old bedroom in Kilcool, County Wicklow, because let's just say in the last week, things haven't gone exactly according to plan. That whole 10th birthday thing, yeah, technology kind of got in the way of that. Basically, my old laptop died after 12 long years of service, and because I don't just have the money lying around to drop it on a new laptop, I'm kindly borrowing my sisters the same sister who's responsible for doing so much good editing so thanks for that sarah and thanks to you for your patience as always this brings me to a handy little reminder if you would like to support this podcast monetarily now would really be a great time to do so considering the fact that i now have to drop money on basically a brand new machine so yeah woohoo that's great not exactly the best news that you could have hoped for, but we'll make the best of it, and we'll continue on with our story of the Thirty Years' War here. Just a little note as well on those 10th birthday episodes, again, because I couldn't record, because the laptop was slowly dying as I, and I was in denial, because I couldn't record, everything's kind of been pushed back, so I'm going to try and get that 10 favourite guests and future plans of the podcast episode out soon-ish, but considering the fact that every time I want to record, I have to basically come to my parents' house, it's kind of, yeah, it'll probably take a little while, and I hope you'll be continuing to be patient with me in the next few weeks or so until I scrape the monies together to actually get a new laptop. But in the meantime, let's continue with the 30 Years War story as best as we can. And in case you forgot, last time we opened this new phase of the conflict by looking at the Swedish angle, and just how severe its problems had become. The plan to distract Poland with a war against Russia had failed. Sweden's soldiers were demanding years of back pay all at once, forcing Oxenstierna to make some weighted promises, and Sweden had been forced to hand a great deal back to Poland in September 1635 in return for a promise by the Poles not to attack them in their hour of crisis, effectively signalling the beginning of a 20-year truce between Poland and Sweden, which really wouldn't expire till 1655, when upon the deluges happen. But that's a story for another time. Back in 1635, in Stockholm and in Stetten, where Axel Oxenstierna, the Swedish Chancellor, had based himself, 
There was much to worry about when considering the future of the Swedish Empire, and yet, thanks to the entry of France against Spain in May the same year, there was also reason to hope that soon enough, all the little wars would become one, and the conflict of Bourbon versus Habsburg would provide new opportunities for Sweden to grasp a new victory. In this episode, having set the background for the Swedes, our focus shifts to the Spanish and the French who were preparing for that showdown which had been building for so many years. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to 1635. The Netherlands cannot be held if the imperialists are defeated in Germany. If the Netherlands are lost, neither the Indies, nor Spain, nor Italy can be defended. The first and greatest dangers are those that threaten Lombardy, the Netherlands and Germany. A defeat in any of these three is fatal for this monarchy, so much so that if the defeat in those parts is a great one, the rest of the monarchy will collapse, for Germany will be followed by Italy and the Netherlands, and the Netherlands will be followed by America and Lombardy will be followed by Naples and Sicily without the possibility of being able to defend either. This gloomy, panicked conception of Spain's interconnected interests and the domino effect which would follow the loss of one or the other of them makes for revealing reading. It also sheds some light on the question of why Madrid felt compelled to fight tooth and nail for a region like the Spanish Netherlands which continued to cost Spain as much as £1 million annually to maintain in the current war with the Dutch. The Spanish understanding of the situation, as King Philip IV explained to his aunt Isabella, then the Spanish governor of the region, was thus defined as follows. Although the war which we have fought in the Netherlands has exhausted our treasury and forced us into the debts that we have incurred, It has also diverted our enemies in those parts, so that, had we not done so, it is certain that we would have had war in Spain or somewhere nearer. It was not merely for the sake of propping up these interconnected theatres of her empire then, but because of the expectation that the enemies of Spain were bound to confront her somewhere and would need to be confronted themselves, so why not in the Netherlands? Spain would cling to everything, no matter the cost, because letting go of one front would mean the eruption of a new war somewhere else, which might well be more expensive and dangerous than the current state of affairs. Interestingly, the plea was to the effect that nothing should be lost, but we find few, if any, explanations for how anything should be gained. Nor was there much in the way of optimism from Spain's chief minister, the Count Duke Olivares. Spain's sickness is serious and has become chronic, Olivares wrote, as early as 1626, when one could argue that things were proceeding well enough for the Habsburgs, adding, We have lost our prestige. The treasury, which is the basis for authority, is totally exhausted, and our ministers are lax, accustomed either not to act or to act slowly and ineffectively. It is to Olivares' credit that despite Spain circling the metaphorical plug hole, the Count Duke managed to hold back what he perceived as the inevitable for several years. There is something to be said for the idea that it was high time Spain cut its losses in any one of the active theatres, 
and we suspect that in addition to these strategic considerations, questions of honour also compelled King Philip IV to maintain the war in the Netherlands, which his grandfather had begun. In his book on the court of Philip IV, called Spain in Decadence, the historian Martin Hume wrote, It never entered the head, apparently, either of Olivares or his master, that these terrible sacrifices were useless to Spain, except that it was a point of honour to hold the Catholic states of Flanders that had been the ancient inheritance of its royal house. Holland was really lost beyond all recovery, though the stiff-necked pride of Castile would not acknowledge it. The religious question in Germany had already practically settled itself, and had left Spain hardly any excuse for fighting for orthodoxy there. All that was needed even now for Spain was to eat her unavoidable leak, to recognise facts patent to all the world, and to abandon her impossible pretensions, and peace with France and Holland might have been attained with ease. But through all the suffering and stress that if continued meant national exhaustion, there was no indication anywhere of the conviction that Spain must voluntarily humble herself or bleed to death. It was inconceivable to Olivares that this unavoidable leak should be swallowed or digested at all. Fighting on, as Spain had always done, seemed the only reasonable course. This grim determination had, after all, netted some notable successes. The Battle of Nordlingen in 1634 had been possible because Olivares had conceived of a plan to use King Philip's brothers against their enemies. This had been a tremendous Habsburg victory, which is probably why we've mentioned it so many times recently, and the symbolism of the two branches of the dynasty coming together on the battlefield to rout the enemy must have put new steel and vigour into Olivares, for upon the French declarations of war, he conceived of yet another bold plan. It was nothing less than Cardinal Richelieu's nightmare, for it would have forced France to defend herself on three fronts all at once, and it threatened the entire ruin of the Bourbons if it were to succeed. From three invasion routes, from Catalonia across the Pyrenees, from Alsace over the Rhine, and from Flanders into the northeast of France, would King Louis XIII's domains be invaded. This is what the historian J. H. Eliot referred to as Olivares' master plan of campaign, and Olivares himself recognised that it would either win and finish the war with supreme brevity, or else utterly finish with the monarchy. Notwithstanding his realm's decline, Olivares' plan for the campaigning year of 1636 promised to be a grave challenge which Cardinal Richelieu could not possibly ignore. Not merely a challenge to France, Olivares conceived of the three-pronged invasion plan as the best way to ruin the Dutch, as he explained to King Philip in November 1635. Neither your father nor your grandfather had the opportunity which your majesty is now vouchsafed to settle the affair of Holland with all advantage and prestige, for God has been pleased to place in your majesty's hand the master key to everything. Initially, though, the French seemed to possess this master key to everything, and Richelieu seemed equally determined to use it. Having declared the war, after all, Richelieu had sponsored its first offensive, and it was an ambitious one. On the 22nd of May 1635, barely a few days after declaring war on Spain, a French army slipped into the Spanish Netherlands and linked up with its Dutch counterpart. The two Allied armies, now working in tandem and overtly for the first time since the previous Franco-Spanish War of the 1590s, 
had as their end goal the seizure of all of Flanders from Madrid. The French and Dutch governments had even conceived of a partition of the Spanish Netherlands between the Dutch and French-speaking populations. But in the development of these plans, both allies had acted prematurely. The results of this Franco-Dutch cooperation were not inspiring, though the appearance of the French so quickly after declaring war must have sent a message. Tirlemont in Brabant was seized, but this small town served no strategic purpose, and its sacking by the French and Dutch effectively ruined any pro-French or pro-Dutch sentiments which the beleaguered Spanish Netherlands populace had previously harboured. Henceforth, they would resist the invader with the same grim determination that had driven Olivares forward. A siege of Louvain was thwarted by the loyal defenders, and in late July of 1635, the Dutch stadtholder Frederick Henry was forced to abandon the ambitious plans of his French ally by rushing to the defence of Schenkenschans. The latter was a critical artery which defended the Cleve and Gelderland and guarded a crossing of the River Val. The campaign in the Netherlands had been a learning curve for the French army. Their first foray into the mass of the Dutch war had not netted them any benefits despite the large commitment of 25,000 men which had been sent there. Furthermore, the relationship with the Dutch had been soured somewhat, thanks to perceptions on both sides, really, that their ally hadn't pulled their weight. The planned campaigns along the Rhine for 1635 produced equally uninspired results, as Charles of Lorraine's small force was not defeated, and nor were the remnants of Wallenstein's army led by Matthias Gallus. Despite grand plans to place an army at the personal command of King Louis XIII, embarrassing shortcomings in the regions of supply and organisation forced Richelieu to abandon much of these plans, and nearly moved him to abandon Alsace and Lorraine. A confession from the French governor of Nancy that anyone who ventured outside the city's walls might be captured by the enemy told its own story. The region, that is, Alsace, was overrun with enemy soldiers. Evidently, the teething problems which Richelieu had failed to foresee plagued the French army, as did, well, the actual plague itself, which forced the French army back from Mainz and prevented Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar's army of Heilbronn League desperados, German Protestants and mercenaries from making any meaningful attack. Perhaps the only true triumph could be found in the Valtelline, those critical alpine passes which connected the Spanish with their Italian appendages making use of meagre resources and the friendship with the Grisons who controlled the passes, a French army under the Duke de Rohan made remarkable progress, but at the expense of security closer to home. A daring Spanish attack on some of the islands just off the coast of Marseille provided the enemy with a convenient base to threaten and raid French shipping interests in the Mediterranean. As the historian David Parrott concluded, The lessons of the 1635 campaign were clear. In numerous areas, administrative, supply and command failure had undermined whatever initial advantages had been enjoyed by the French forces. However, it was one thing to recognise that these initial setbacks owed so much to organisational weakness, quite another to provide practical responses. And what responses Richelieu did develop for the new campaigning season of spring 1636 amounted to a resumption of the old efforts which had brought failure in 1635. 
Little did Richelieu seem to realise that Madrid had absorbed the initial salvos, and that under Olivares' aforementioned master plan of campaign, France would be forced onto the defensive. The three-pronged invasion struck first at Picardy in the northeast of France, where an army under the Cardinal Infant, that co-victor of Nordlingen, moved across the border from Flanders on the 4th of July. From there, La Capelle was seized, the River Somme was crossed in early August, and the Cardinal Infant's force of 20,000 or so men continued to press onwards, with Paris apparently in their sights. As his scouts were reported being just 25 kilometres from the capital, the French defence finally stabilised, and the sense of panic which had animated the Parisians mercifully passed. During the crisis of August 1636, Richelieu and Louis XIII had elected to stay put in Paris, and Richelieu had put on a brave face, walking through the streets and greeting with cold indifference any who might plead with him to help them flee. Disaster was averted, and the Cardinal Infant pulled his men back by the end of August, having come close to seizing another prize, Amiens. Like the miracle of the Marne in 1914, this blistering invasion of France had seemed unstoppable, but one cannot avoid the conclusion that Richelieu was at least partially to blame for France's unpreparedness. Richelieu had prioritised an invasion of Franche Comte, a region which straddled France's eastern border and had been, historically, a centre of Spanish defence. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Cardinal had imagined that seizing it would sever Spanish strategic plans for the Netherlands and the Rhine, but he hadn't planned on the Spanish preempting this attack with one of their own. Instead, Richelieu seems to have expected the Spanish to sit still for another year while French armies were sent against them. The image we have of an overextended Habsburg defence gradually being chipped away by the Cardinal's brilliance is certainly tarnished by the events of 1636. 
the Cardinal's lack of preparations were totally exposed, and for a frightful moment, he appeared fatally out of his depth. Fortunately for Richelieu, though, the Habsburg high tide had expended itself on the invasion of Picardy, and the grand coordinated plan which Olivares had imagined was never borne out, for a number of reasons. The first reason was that Cardinal Infant's forces gradually retreated from Picardy and Champagne over late summer. The second was that Matthias Gallus, the imperial commander and key ingredient in the three-pronged plan, took too long to invade Burgundy and threaten Dijon. Due to Gallus's tardiness, he arrived only in mid-September, by which point the panic caused by the Cardinal Infant had evaporated, and the French were able to apportion resources to that area. Third, and finally, Spain's opening move in the Grand Plan had been thwarted before it had even begun. There was to be no invasion of the Pyrenees, because the intended base of this operation, Catalonia, proved a most unwilling host, in a sign of things to come. Olivares had wanted the three invasions coordinated so that they complemented each other, and had this happened, the results may well have been a succession of triumphs. Yet the potency of the plan lay in the multitude of simultaneous threats it would present to Louis XIII's realm. By presenting these threats unevenly, the urgency and force of the Spanish plan was quickly lost, and impressive advances, like those undertaken by the Cardinal Infant, were possible, less due to the brilliance of the offensive, and more because of the unpreparedness of the opponent. But there were worse consequences for Olivares than simply the failure of this campaign. As the Count Duke had claimed when presenting the plan to the king, the choice was either great success or terrible failure, and the heavy investment necessary for making the scheme possible would bring one or the other to Madrid's door. As the course of the conflict was to show, the words of the Count Duke ran true. Sir, this is my opinion, Olivares had declared when presenting the plan. It would be idle to deceive myself, because I have the feeling that I am going to lose my life, not in the war itself, which would be a happy fate, but merely in the task of making all ready for the struggle. I am so unwell that my head cannot bear the flame of the candle or the light of a window, which seems as strong as the glare of the streets in the August sun. But God may not want my health to improve, nor anything of mine to flourish, except in so far as it represents the smallest hair in the balance of service to your majesty. To my present judgment, it seems that this is either to lose everything irretrievably or enable us to save the ship. I would be a traitor not to put things as I find them. Here go religion, king, queen, nation, and all besides with them. And if there is not enough strength, let us die in summoning it, for it is better to die than fall under the sway of heretics, as I hold the French to be. Thus everything will come to an end, or Castile will be the leader of the world. So, yeah, there were no half-measures in Olivares' mind. Either Spain would be rejuvenated by a successful campaign in 1636, or the whole thing would accelerate her decline. Indeed, as Olivares would have known by late 1636, France had not been knocked out by the succession of blows. She was still standing, bruised and stunned, but by no means down and out. Spain had manifestly failed to capitalise upon Richelieu's failures from 1635, and now Madrid was herself open to a counterattack which struck at the heart of Habsburg Spain. Catalonia was the fiercely independent kingdom which itself had been ruled by Aragon, the partner of Castile which together constituted Spain. 
With its cultural and financial base in Barcelona, Catalonia represented a critical part of the Spanish kingdom and its proximity to France, being on the border of the Pyrenees, singled the region out as vital to Spanish security. It was therefore a serious problem that Olivares always seemed to rub these Catalans the wrong way. The citizens insisted that the demands placed upon Catalonia were unfair and that Madrid could not possibly expect these Catalans to foot such an enormous bill. Unbeknownst to Olivares, the Catalan protests were rooted in fact, as the demands placed upon them were based upon a flawed system of censuses which massively exaggerated the Catalonian population. Rather than one million people, as Madrid believed or claimed to believe, Catalonia contained less than half that, roughly 400,000 citizens. The bill presented to Catalonia was therefore far larger than her neighbours and far more difficult for her to pay. On Christmas Day, 1624, the so-called Union of Arms had been presented, with the goal of spreading the burden of the military expenses foremost in Olivares' mind. Each of Spain's provinces would be required to pay a share, and the Count Duke used the aforementioned system to deduce what was owed. The numbers discussed were considerable. Catalonia's supposed one million citizens were requested to pay an eye-watering 3.7 million ducats, compared to Aragon's 2 million ducats spread over 300,000 citizens, or Valencia's 1 million ducats for 350,000 citizens. These figures were almost all inaccurate and caused disquiet, but the Catalans were by far the greatest objectors to the plan. Olivares insisted that the sums were used for home defence, and the payments would be spread over 15 years, but even so, Barcelona remained resolute in its refusal to grant the Spanish king a penny. Each time Olivares and his king ventured to Barcelona, they were forced to return empty-handed, and this was the case once more in spring 1636, where Spanish troops were meant to use Catalonia as a staging post for a French invasion from the south. Being bitter over the demands repeatedly placed upon them, the Catalonian citizens refused to provide the quarters for the mostly Castilian soldiers, who were themselves beginning to look increasingly drawn and wasted, as the English ambassador to Madrid recorded at the time. I have observed these levies, and I find the horses so weak as the most of them will never be able to go to the rendezvous, and those very hardly gotten. The infantry are so unwilling to serve as they are carried like galley slaves, which serves not the turn, and so far short in number of what is proposed as they come not to one of three. The loss of prestige, money and power represented devastating wounds upon the Spanish psyche, but the weakening of its armed forces could be fatal to the very existence of Spain. Having built its reputation as the premier fighting force of Europe, the withering of Spanish manpower suggested the end was nigh. Catalonia could be greatly imperiled if Olivares did not find some way to bind the Catalans closer to Madrid, but the Count Duke was not in the business of granting concessions. As far as he was concerned, Catalans were betraying their sovereign by refusing to pay him what he was owed. It does not seem to have crossed his mind that Catalans genuinely could not afford the high price tag which he waved in front of them. Nor, it must be said, did Olivares stop to consider the cumulative impact which this wrong-headed approach to troubled subjects might produce, especially since another contingent part of the Spanish crown, Portugal, 
was also beginning to splinter and crack under the pressure. In February 1630, a Dutch fleet appeared off the coast of Pernambuco, the most populous province of the Portuguese colony of Brazil, which produced 60% of Brazil's sugar. Sugar was the equivalent of gold in the 1600s, despite the labour-intensive process required to bring it from plantation to table, and slaves were therefore required in abundance to make it viable. This was a period of history characterised by the explosion of the slave trade and the simultaneous enrichment of the slavers and plantation owners. It was especially lucrative for the Spanish and Portuguese, who managed to control the supply of slaves and the markets which required them. From Seville and Lisbon, the east coast of Africa in Angola and back to the Americas, money and sugar flowed back to Europe, powered by the appetite for sugar and the ambition of the slavers. The Dutch interrupted this ideal Iberian arrangement, which had been fused even more closely together once the Spanish and Portuguese crowns had been merged under King Philip II of Spain in 1580. From that point, the Dutch faced the formidable combination of the Portuguese and Spanish fleets, but they were also granted irresistible opportunities to take by force what the Portuguese and Spanish had spent decades building. Portuguese national pride and finance was invested heavily in Brazil and in the sugar-slave trade which had enriched Lisbon in the preceding centuries. As a result, when the Dutch arrived in February 1630 to sever this link once and for all, and when subsequent efforts by the Spanish to eject the Dutch from the Brazil colony failed, it called into question the symbiotic Iberian arrangement. For the next 25 years, the Dutch clung to this Brazilian appendage, shoring up their regime in Pernambuco by appealing to religious minorities like the Moriscos and resident Jews, the latter of whom were even allowed to establish their own printing press, publishing in the Americas for the first time and urging more Jews to join them in Brazil to escape the persecutions of Madrid and Lisbon. Dutch tolerance, which was certainly politically motivated, nonetheless left a great impression upon the residents of the colony. But again, the Dutch occupation of northern Brazil was a double-edged sword, because it didn't just transfer colonial revenues from the Spanish to the Dutch side of the ledger, it also called into question Spain's ability to defend its Portuguese partner, and increased tensions regarding the idea of a Portuguese divorce from Spain, which erupted into the open within a few years. Understanding the impact of the occupation on numerous levels, Frederick Henry approved the dispatch of his cousin, Count John Maurice of Nassau, to Pernambuco in October 1636. 300 miles of Brazilian coastline came under Dutch hands, and by 1641, Count John had even ruptured the Portuguese hold over the slave trade by breaking into the slave port of Luanda in Angola. By that point, Portuguese skirmishes with their Spanish overlords had resulted in a full-blown war of Portuguese restoration, and Olivares had utterly lost control of the situation. This extremely grim outcome could not have been known by autumn 1636, though, and following a campaigning season which sent some firm messages, but drew no concrete results, Olivares began to contemplate entering negotiations with the French following not even 18 months of open war. Olivares had been moved to adopt this course due to the fear, correctly placed as it turned out, that the inability to focus on regaining Brazil would cost Spain dearly. But there was more to Olivares' sudden turn to peace than this. 
it is worth considering the possibility that, having fired what was expected to be Spain's best shot and having missed, Olivares had come to terms with the facts. And these facts were that Spain simply could not afford a full-scale war with France. Further, these facts remind us that the main goal for Olivares had always been the subjugation of the Dutch, or at least the creation of some kind of beneficial arrangement with them. We are drawn to the fact that, even while his multi-layered campaign against the French appears formidable on paper, it was often referred to in those same papers merely as a diversion. But a diversion against what? So long as the French remained to support the Dutch in strength, the Franco-Dutch alliance had been confirmed in February 1635 after all, it was impossible to imagine Madrid ever forcing the Dutch to the peace table. And as we know, Richelieu's regime was by no means wholly popular across the country. A string of debilitating defeats might force Richelieu from power and reinstate the pro-Spanish regime, led by King Louis XIII's mother, thereby removing the threat France posed to Spain in its Dutch war. Eliminate France, Olivares imagined, and the Dutch would be brought earlier to the peace table. Finally, that grand plan, which one historian has termed the most ambitious military conception of early modern Europe, has all the characteristics of a lightning strike, a campaign to remove France from the war before the latter's wealth and resources could be brought to bear against the Spanish. If this was Olivares' plan then, to strike quickly and sharply at France, to force her out of the recently made war, then it can be stated that the Count Duke miscalculated disastrously. The campaign against France failed, and only awakened in Richelieu the sense that the defeat of Spain in detail was essential for the sake of French security and expansion. Even worse for Olivares, 1636 can be viewed as the year when the war widened considerably. In March of that year, Sweden and France concluded the Treaty of Wismar, which compelled Richelieu to maintain a proper system of subsidies with the Swedes in Germany and also dangled a military alliance in front of Sweden. The treaty was subject to ratification, but pointed to the enemies of the Habsburgs, the French, Swedes and Dutch, moving closer together, as did the confirmation of an open breach between France and the Emperor. With France, now at war with the Spanish and Imperials, joining with the Dutch in the former and the Swedes in the latter theatre, all sides waited patiently for news of a victory which might justify the vast resources that were now invested in this great showdown between the Habsburgs and their foes. In the first few days of October 1636, Colonel Richelieu was informed that the beleaguered Swedes had pulled just such a victory from the jaws of desperation. The Swedish commander Johann Banner had defeated a larger Saxon imperial army at the Battle of Wittstock. It was exactly what the demoralised Swedes needed, and Chancellor Oxenstierna was determined to wrest every bit of political capital out of that triumph that he could. That's all to come in the next episode, history friends. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our temporary studio. I actually think it sounds better than the other place I was recording in, But hopefully soon we'll be able to get a new laptop and things will calm down a little bit. Sorry for the delayed birthday celebrations, but this just means we can party on even longer, as far as I'm concerned anyway. Join us in the Facebook group and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more episodes that are going to come in the next few weeks, whenever I get a chance. Thanks again. This has been When Diplomacy Fails, episode 62 of the 30 Years War, and I'll be seeing you all soon. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 